0: Welcome to Hymn Talk, a discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me is my brother. <laughs> Are you trying to make me laugh? No. My jaw. my Those of you who don't see my brother Alex, he often looks terribly <laughs> bored on these podcasts. So I apologize for yeah, that. Yeah, it's mid afternoon. <laughs> is it Thursday? Is mid afternoon? Is
1: it Thursday? It's raining outside the windows right now. And I a
0: little bit. I'm Zach DePrima. With me is my brother Alex. Alex, how are you doing? Happy
1: to be here, man. <laughs> Feeling great. Just had a cup of coffee, All right, loved, loved, there was nothing I'd rather do <laughs> at 3 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon than a hymn talk.
0: Okay, so Alex is here, he's shot out of a cannon, which is how we want him. Uh, our topic for today is the topic of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Alex, uh, it's it's my sense, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think for the average Baptist, the Lord's Supper doesn't play as big of a role Uh, in our church experience, as other more traditional denominations. Uh, Do you agree with that? And if you do, why do you think that is?
1: Yes, I agree with that as an observation. Mm -hmm. Baptists have, compared to other denominations and Christian groups, downplayed the significance of the Lord's Supper. Um, That said, there are groups that have a view of the Lord's Supper that I believe cannot be sustained by the Bible and is given far too prominent a place. Hmm. For example, among Roman Catholics, who would believe you have to take communion in order to maintain your status in the faith. That's why it was so important for JFK to get the last rites hmm. after his, his he was shot in the head. Mm-hmm. They'd have a priest rush to the hospital to give him his last rites mm-hmm. because special grace was being communicated through the sacrament.
0: Or well, even another famous figure, Alexander Hamilton, who would, would have been something like an Anglican or Episcopalian. Yes, that's yeah. exactly
1: right. When he was shot by Aaron Burr. Yeah, exactly. So, so... I, yeah, I definitely want to step away from that view of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, but that said, among Reformed groups, uh, the Lord's Supper has been seen as far more prominent and 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 crucial to the life of the church and the life of the Christian. Reflection upon the Lord's Supper has been so deep and and rich over the past five six hundred years. Um, and Baptists, sadly, among all the denominations tend to have one of the most um, poorly thought-out views of communion um, and, and, and and have not given enough attention. I think that would be broadly true.
0: Hmm. Well, why was the Lord's Supper uh, such an enormous issue during, say, the Reformation?
1: Well, for two reasons, at least. Um, it was among one of the most prominent theological issues in the Church period. Mm-hmm in uh the roman catholic church uh we, we think of the primacy of preaching and the centrality of preaching no one would have thought that way um on the eve of the reformation they would have thought of the centrality of the eucharist hmm, and mm-hmm, the mass mm-hmm. and so uh already you have the lord's supper being at, at, at the heart of the church's life yeah and on that point an errant view of the lord's supper yeah being at the heart of Not everything about it was errant, but the idea of transubstantiation was errant that that the physical body of Jesus was mystically ingested in the elements and special grace was communicated through the sacrament. Um, So in the Reformation, there's responding to that error. But then just in the development of the Reformation as it took course, it, the Lord's Supper became a very contentious issue among the reformers themselves. The the foremost reformers, and various groups emerged precisely over this issue. Uh, yes, most could agree transubstantiation and the medieval Catholic view of of the Lord's Supper, was was had elements that were that were errant and wrong, but then precisely understanding in what sense Christ is present in the Supper, or how to view the Supper in the life of the Church was not agreed upon immediately. And so you had, this is an oversimplification, but three basic views that emerged, you could think of them as like a spectrum of views. Mm -hmm. On one extreme, you would have had the view of Martin Luther, which would be a view, it's not called transubstantiation, it would be called consubstantiation, which is his way of explaining how it is that the Lord is present in the Lord's Supper. And and that that phrase, con, means with. The idea is that the Lord is present in the Supper everywhere kind of around the elements, Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. the elements but he's not physically in the element itself. And um, it was a way to say, to explain the presence of Christ. So Luther would say the Lord is really physically present. That's his physical body and blood all around and with the elements as they're right. being taken. That's a very crude way of explaining it. He has a very famous cl- clash with Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli, um, uh, who's a reformer in Zurich. And Zwingli has a view that has come to be known as the pure memorialist view. The idea that Christ is not actually present physically at the supper—it's a memorial; it's a it's a remembering of the Lord's death. Now, there is something to be learned here. I am caricaturing the views of these two men. Uh-huh. Their views were not as far apart as the caricature, yeah. But because there was such a sharp conflict be- between those two men over this issue, they divided over this issue. Uh-huh. Luther denounced Zwingli; he said Zwingli wasn't a Christian, uh-huh. you know, because of his views of the Lord's supper they argued so bitterly against each other that they became more entrenched in their own views and began, I think, to exaggerate. They made some statements that exaggerated their positions and their claims. Right. And so I think Zwingli actually has a position closer to that of the third position, which is John Calvin's position. Yeah. Which some will call the spiritual presence view, the idea that, no, Christ is not physically present in the elements, but we do have an experience of actual spiritual communion with Christ through the Lord's Supper. Mm Mm-hmm the elements of bread and the cup bring in a cogent way to the minds of Christians, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for them. And there's a personal taking of this by faith. And then that we commune with Christ, we we have an experience of communion with him, uh, an experience of his grace and his love that comes to us in a very tangible and cogent way in the elements itself. That's Calvin's view. That's my view. That's a view that's that's being Finding renewal among a lot of Baptists, mm-hmm. and I think Zwingli was actually a lot closer to that view. Yeah, he, I don't think he just believed. Oh yeah, this is like, this is like you just, just having a pleasant memory about what the Lord did mm-hmm. two thousand years ago. But it, he ma- he made statements in the midst of polemic and debate yeah.
0: and argument. Yeah, that were somewhat extreme that sound that way. But it seems his views have shaped most Baptists' thinking on the Lord's Supper. I at least, at fair. least you know your character, the, this memorialist perspective. You
1: ask the average Baptist, what do they think is going on in communion? We're remembering what Jesus did for us. Yeah, almost like a holiday. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I would want to say a lot more is going on than just that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. an actual communing with the Lord and His people through. Word and sacrament, Hmm. word and symbol.
0: What do you think Christians should feel and think when they take the Lord's Supper?
1: Wow, a lot of things. Hmm. I mean, what should they feel and think? Um, A sense of sobriety and solemnity over what it costs to achieve our redemption. Hmm. We're remembering the Lord's death. We're proclaiming His death. Remembering the when the sacrament or the ordinance itself was given. Yeah, and what the events surrounding that were. Uh, Remembering our own sin Mm -hmm. and our culpability and sending the Lord to the cross and grief over that, Uh, utter joy Mm -hmm. over the love of God expressed in the blood shedding of the Son for our sake so that He could be redeemed. Mm -hmm. This is my body broken for you. You know, this is my blood shed for you. Yeah we should think a lot about faith in Christ and what that is and what I'm doing by taking these elements what I'm saying and proclaiming Jesus is mine that he died for me and a whole gamut of yeah emotions and things but but the the atonement and its significance and all the things the Bible says about the atonement Mm -hmm. should be flooding into our
0: minds. yeah I think of that statement Paul inserts in Corinthians that you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes Mm I, I rarely think about that when I take the Lord's Supper. I think that's that's often neglected this proclamatory element of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I'm I, not I, sure. I'm not sure Paul has in mind their evangelism, but uh, I don't think it's wrong for us even to think that way that we're, we're 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 declaring to a dying world the death of Christ and his sacrifice for sins. Being, being it's a pictorial
1: depiction. Of, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's
0: fair. I I tend to think of
1: of that statement as being a proclamation of faith in this. Yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, I I completely agree. Yeah.
0: Alex, I I think this is, this has been our experience, but, but some traditions promote kind of a, a, a a really deep self-examination before the Lord's Supper. Um, that can be, in in some traditions, very grueling. Mm-hmm. Um, where does that come from? Why, why why do why do we put such an emphasis on examination, self-examination before the Lord's Supper?
1: There would be scriptural reasons and historical reasons. The scriptural reasons would emerge primarily out of the material we find in First Corinthians eleven, where Paul is chiding the Corinthians over um, using the occasion of the Lord's Supper, observance of the Lord's Supper as um, a time to promote factionalism and division. People are gorging themselves on the bread and the wine. They're going in front of each other. They're not waiting for each other. It's a terrible scene that's that's taking place in Corinth and um, profound irreverence. And 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 Paul does encourage self-examination in that situation and um, he talks about how you can take the sacrament in such a way that you drink judgment unto yourself Mm -hmm. and um, you don't discern the body, that kind of thing. And so that, that has relevance for all of us that we not take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner for sure. I do think like in most of our settings, it's not like the Corinthian setting, so we shouldn't put too much, we shouldn't view the Corinthian setting as normative. Uh-huh. I've never been in a situation where that was happening at the Lord's table, right? But um, when I say normative, I mean like our normal experience. Yeah. Any principles that are established there are, of course, normative. Uh, but then also historically, um, it, it was very common in uh, various parishes and various traditions, various cities, churches, locales, districts that um, it was requested by the leaders of the church that there be a period of self examination before coming to the table to see if you had been in any serious sin, if you truly were walking with the Lord, if your faith was genuine, that's not illegitimate at all. I don't think I do think that can become um, what would be a good word, become overkill, we could fail to recognize that the Lord's Supper is for sinners, and Peter took the Lord's Supper. And just a few hours later, he's denying the Lord. His faith could not have been at at the peak Hmm. when he he took the Lord's Supper, and yet Jesus tells him to take it. So I don't think we should think we need to come to the Lord at our spiritual highest. It's for needy sinners, people who know themselves to be sinners and are trusting and clinging to the sacrifice Christ has given. But that said, we should never come as hypocrites. Hmm. We should never come as those who are, are... are faking an attachment to Jesus when we truly are not walking with the Lord.
0: Alice? when it comes to communion and the hymns that we sing for communion, what are we looking for from our communion hymns?
1: As I think the atonement ought to be prominent, the person of Jesus, uh, our sins, his work on the cross, the connection between his cross work and our salvation, those should be the themes that are prominent in the songs. Uh, so, so songs that focus on the atonement and on the person of Christ and on the cross. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I worry sometimes, especially those who have been maybe captivated by or uh, influenced by that memorialist perspective. We think memorial service, and the Lord's Supper can feel a lot like a funeral. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the songs is it's like we're 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 mourning the death of Jesus, and the se- like he's still dead. Mm. Um, I, I I mean I used to think that before as a kid, like sad little time for jesus yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and the, the longer i've been around the, the more that seems inappropriate to me
1: yeah i think i think it's appropriate to consider the uh, the the um injustice of the cross yeah, the the way the, which my pain contributed the, yeah to his death and and the focus is on the death of christ not his resurrection mm-hmm. um so the the scenes that took place in the garden the scenes that took place at the cross mm-hmm. It's impossible us to think of those things without feeling a sense of the sting of it, the bitterness of it, the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. And so if there's a sobriety and a solemnity about some aspects of the Lord's Supper service, I don't think that's in any way inappropriate. But I think like all those emotions I was talking about before and things that should be in our minds when we come to the table, all those things should find expression in the song. So you could sing a song in a minor key like, Oh, dearest Jesus, you know, what, what law hast thou broken? Uh, Bach has a famous arrangement of that song um, that's very somber. It, it always takes me right there to the foot of the cross and how dark that day was. And then also it's appropriate to sing a, a song that there was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, which if you sing the traditional tune, it's just very Uplifting. Oh, yeah. And very, yeah. very bright, and very major key and joyful. Well, both of those songs are appropriate to sing in a service you're remembering the Lord's death and its significance for your own sin. Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of your favorite communion hymns?
1: Those two. Uh, oh, dearest Jesus might be my favorite. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It's one of my favorites. How deep the Father's love for us. That's eh, not one of my favorites, but it's good. It's mm-hmm. really good. There is a fountain filled with blood is wonderful. Probably. Um, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Beautiful song to sing at communion. A newer song called See the Destined Day Arise. It was written, uh, the Gospel Coalition had a national conference on the Gospel of Luke. And they invited hymn writers to write hymns based on the text of Luke, like several months in advance of the conference. And that was one of the most prominent ones to come out of that hymn writing experiment. Um, And that's a a very appropriate communion song. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, that brings us to our hymn of the podcast, and that is the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. If you've had probably any sort of traditional background, you're probably familiar with this hymn, or you're at least probably familiar with the tune. It it shows up in various places in traditional music, classical music, uh, as well as popular music. The lyrics to this hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, they're based on a medieval poem titled Salve Munde Salutare and uh, that literally means greeting the, the savior of the world. And it's based on a poem that's, that's traditionally attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, Bernard being the famous ascetic. If Bernard wrote this poem, this would have had it dated back to about the 12th century, uh, the, early 12th, the early 12th century. Each verse of the poem, it addresses a, a different part of the body of the crucified savior. Now remember, this is the poem Salve Mundi. Um, It addresses the feet of Christ, it addresses his knees, his hands, his pierced side, his breast, and his heart, as well as his head. Now the hymn, O Sacred Head, it's based on that last part of the hymn, that last part of the hymn that starts with the word salve caput uh, cruentatum, which can be rendered O Bloody Head. Now, this poem, Salve Mundi, it was translated, at least that last part, by Paul Gerhardt in the 1600s. Now Paul Gerhardt himself, he was a German theologian and Lutheran minister who was the one who translated the Latin text into German. Now the tune, which would be familiar to to many of you probably, it's a traditional tune that's uh, attributed to Hans Leo Hassler, and it was probably written around 1600 is our best guess. Uh, But it's most popularized by what I consider, who I consider to be the greatest musician of all time, and that is Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, And I find that there's relative consensus around this. I I think Bach is is the best, he's the goat, he's the greatest of all time. Well, Bach incorporated this tune into several of his works. Now, my favorite Bach rendering of of this tune is in his Christmas Oratorio, uh, which in Bach's uh, uh, catalog. It's BWV 248. And, uh, I like it in part six of that Christmas oratorio. It's just fantastic. If you haven't listened to any Bach, you don't know much Bach, much of Bach, do yourself a favor. You don't need to wait till Christmas time. Listen to Bach's Christmas oratorio. But this tune, it also features, uh, prominently throughout the last several centuries. Franz listed variations uh, but even Paul Simon in the 20th century and Dave Brubeck Trio, it shows up in their music as well. Now, so this was the this hymn became popular in the German Lutheran tradition, uh, but it, it crossed over into English speakers in around the 1800s, where Catherine Winkworth. Translated the text into English, and Catherine Winkworth. Um, that name is probably not remembered by most of us, but she's. All, she's. This isn't the the only hymn that she translated. In fact, uh, she translated the hymn that I think we profiled before on this podcast, and that's the hymn "Praise to the Lord, the Almighty." Probably my favorite hymn, at least my favorite song of praise. So, so many people were involved in bringing this hymn. Uh, ...to our day today. There's the original poem in the Latin text. You've got Paul Gerhardt translating this Bernard of Clairvaux poem into German. And then you have Catherine Winkworth translating it into English. So it's preserved to us today, uh, even English speakers. At our church, we typically sing three verses of this hymn. And the first verse that we sing that, that says, "...O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down..." Uh, this first verse, it, it highlights the striking contrast of the very Son of God dying such a shameful, gory death upon the cross, and just that juxtaposition. The second verse, uh, even more importantly, it accentuates the, the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, Christ's atonement, which is, as we've considered in the past, it's at, it's the very core of the gospel itself, that Jesus in my place. It's in that second verse where the hymn hymn writer says, What thou, my Lord, has suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. You can see Jesus in my place. The cross saves. The third verse in the tradition of the best communion hymns pledges fealty to Christ until he comes, which is one of the reasons we we take communion. It's why we take up the bread, why we take up the cup. Uh, uh, We are doing this in obedience to Christ, and proclamation of him until he comes. And it's that verse I'm going to read to you. It says, What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. We pledge ourselves to the Savior. Friends, listening to this, I can't think of a better hymn to commemorate the Lord's death in the believer's affection for the Savior, and the same most sacred head now wounded. Alex and I, we commend it to you.